Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on October the 3rd, 2011. For newcomers, you should look into the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you'll find hundreds of audios for free download. Help yourself to them and hopefully they'll give you shortcuts to understanding this uh, this well-managed system we live in. We think it's chaotic, but it's not really. It's well-managed by experts in the mind and sociology, uh, mass psychology, and, and basically they give us our thoughts, our trends. They work with the culture industry. They work with the media. It's all one big consortium, really, that's out there to give you your reality. And uh, and people do swallow it, and it's very hard initially to break out of it. You want to believe everything is real. You can't believe you've been a fool your whole life, and that's the biggest uh, shocker of all is to find out, yeah, you have been, if you're honest enough about it, and uh, then what are you going to do about it? And the th- first thing you do is learn as much as you can, and you go through lots of traps on the way because the big boys who run reality know you'll go through the formula, and they make sure that you get carried off into a thousand different directions and to other galaxies and everything else. Anything you can imagine, it's out there, believe you me. And it takes a lot, of, a lot of study to get back to what truth actually is. And you must also start using your own memory because really that's the best uh, record that you have. You've experienced changes in your own life that made no sense, at least not to compare to, compare to what they were giving you as the facts at the time for changes and all the rest of it. And you got to start using that, what you've learned, and, and then apply it to the past. And you'll see the pattern, how the, the tricks have been played down through the ages. And they don't change the techniques because they work every time. So why change the formula? So anyway, help yourself to those audios. And remember all those, um, uh, sites there on, on the com site have uh, transcripts in English as well for print-up. And you can go into alanwattsentinel.eu for transcripts, some of the talks I've given, and you'll find them in other languages there for print-up as well. Remember, too, you're the audience that brings me to you. You can buy the books and discs that I have got for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. I don't take on guests as advertisers, as most people do to make their living. I don't do it. I, I do it the suicidal way, which is okay. And... Um, it's up to you to keep me going so you can buy the books to have for sale. Now, from the U.S. to Canada, you can use a personal check or an international postal money order, or you can send cash, or you can use PayPal. You'll find out how to do it on the CuttingThroughTheMidges.com website. Across the rest of the world, you've got Western Union MoneyGram, and again, PayPal to order and donate. And remember, straight donations are really, really awfully welcome right now. Because uh, in the past, I never pushed myself enough, and everyone gets so used to me coming on every night just like any other regular uh, show on television or something like that, and uh, they, they don't realize that, that uh, you're dependent upon them for the cash. And I try and give you shortcuts, to, as I say, to the understanding of the big picture here, and to show you that those who hold, hold power in all ages make sure they continue to hold power in the next age because they plan the future. 
they plan the kind of society they want. And believe you me, to them it's warfare, in fact, upon society. It's done on that kind of mode with think tanks and strategists, just as, uh, in fact, a lot of them come from the military. In fact, top officials, they join the think tanks and they work on society, how to promote trends, ideas and thinking, uh, new ways of living, all of that kind of stuff is coordinated at the top. The capstone, I call it, because there's definitely a controlling factor in the center of all these think tanks and NGOs and foundations that run parallel to what you think is government. They're higher than government. They put their own members into government, in fact, and I might touch on some of that tonight. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. I think a lot of people now have wisened up at least to, especially since 9-11, people have kind of woken up to at least something big was happening. They think they're awake, but they're not really completely awake until you get out the paradigms you were in already. Because really, we become shocked to when we see that the system we've been living in quite happily has been shaken. And often you can't, people can't go back and, and say, wait a minute, we're living happily inside a, a kind of safe paradigm, but who created that one? Because we're, the countries are always changing, the systems are always upgrading their system. And even though they go back on platitudes to old, the, the old days or, or foundations of countries, it's nothing like the real foundations at all. We've come such a long way with massive social changes forced upon the public. But it's always been from the top, from the top, from those uh, corporations, international corporations that really run countries, including the banking corporations as well. Because uh, these are the guys who get together with the power to change things and they set up policies through their think tanks and how to implement them on society. These are the people who have the say uh, along with UNICEF and, and the United Nations educational organizations to make sure everyone gets a standardized, if, if albeit false, education, especially to do with histories. And uh, it works very, very well. We've all had the same indoctrinations and nothing really much changes. But we're going into this system now where you're, you're living in a world. I've always said that they used to follow the plan of, of revelation in, in the Bible. Uh, these characters, they, they follow it. You see, some people see it as a, a, a prophecy and others see it as a, a, basically a business plan, you might say. And, uh, when you look at the, the time would come where all the secrets would be shouted from the rooftops, well, in the days of the internet, uh, they certainly are to an extent. It depends who's doing the shouting and whose information they're shouting about. But governments now have all agreed, and they obviously agreed an awful long time ago, probably before we were even given the Internet, because it was used by the military-industrial complex before the public have ever heard of it. Uh, it's no doubt that, uh, that this really is there to serve them. And it's also a great tool for keeping the pulse on the public all the time. They know what's been, what all the daily chit-chats about. They know how far to push the envelope in any particular area. If it gets too hot, they'll scale it back a little bit. If the people are, are fairly quiet, they'll push forward with different social agendas and price increases, that kind of stuff. 
that they're doing all the time anyway. So anyway, this article here is from Reuters, because they, they route the news to you. So I call them Reuters, actually. They call them Reuters. But that was a, a company, actually, that was set up by the Rothschilds family initially to, to take over all and feed all uh, news organizations the same stuff. I think there's only two or three companies now do it, and probably all owned by the same same guy. Anyway, that's how you standardize information and decide what we're going to prattle about for the day. Anyway, this article here is about Internet companies such as Google, Twitter, Facebook are increasingly co-opted for surveillance work as the information they gather proves irresistible to law enforcement agencies. Web experts said this week, love experts, they just have to be experts. No Although such companies try to keep their users' information private, that's a joke. Their business models depend on exploiting it to sell targeted advertising. And when governments demand they hand it over, they have little choice but to comply. Well, actually, they sell it. Uh, They've been doing this for years Uh, to the cops and and, and the government. Suggestions that uh, BlackBerry maker uh, RIM, RIM, I guess they call it, might give user data to British police after its messenger service was used to coordinate riots this summer caused outrage, as is the spying on social media used by more oppressive governments. But the vast amount of personal information like companies like Google collect on their businesses has become simply too valuable for police and governments to ignore. Delegates to the Internet Governance Forum in Nairobi said. They always hold it in some faraway place, don't they? It says, when the possibility exists for information to be obtained that wasn't possible before, it's entirely understandable that law enforcement is interested, Google's chief Internet evangelist, Vint Cerf, told Reuters in an interview. Uh, then the, inter- the issue would be, what's the right policy? And that, of course, engenders a lot of debate, said Cerf, who was recognized as one of the fathers of the Internet for his early work in areas including communications protocols and email. Demands from governments from, for Internet companies to hand over information become routine, according to online privacy researcher and activist Christopher uh, Sohian, who made extensive use of freedom of information requests in his work. Every decent-sized U.S. telecoms and Internet company has a team that does nothing but respond to requests for information, Sogan told Reuters in an interview. He estimates that U.S. Internet and telecoms companies may receive about 300,000 such requests in connection with law enforcement each year, but public information is scarce. It says, well, U.S. courts are obliged to publish reports on wiretapping of telephone lines, no similar information is required to be made public with respect to the Internet, which grew up after the laws on electronic communications were passed. Google does voluntarily publish a transparency report every six months in which it details the number of requests it receives from governments around the world to remove content from its services or hand over user data. But the numbers do not reveal how many users are affected by each request, only trends country by country. And it says, some governments are requiring Internet companies to collect more data and keep it for longer, said Katarzyna uh, Semilevich, it's called, I guess, Executive Director of Poland's uh, Panopticon Foundation, which campaigns for human rights in light of modern surveillance. Government agencies throughout the world are pushing companies to collect even more data than is needed for their business purposes, she told the conference. Every day, she says, for example, we have a very controversial data retention regime which is currently under review and requires people to store data for a period up to two years so it can easily be accessed by law enforcement agencies. It's way beyond that. And and you think they're ever telling us the truth anyway. Do do you really think they'll ever tell us the truth? Of course they won't. 
you know, authorities have never told the public the truth about anything. Anyway, it says the easing costs of surveillance are an all-time low, uh, Sogin said, with Google charging an administrative fee of $25 to hand over data. Yahoo charges $20, and Microsoft and Facebook provides data for free because they're all really part of the, the National Security Agency, as far as I'm concerned. The marginal cost of surveilling one more person is now essentially approaching zero. It's getting so cheap. So... It's all a matter of routineness now, I guess. And uh, even your local cops want in on it because they see it on television and it sounds exciting. And, uh, and you've got to have what's on television first in fiction and then put it into reality. you just got to do it. And uh, the, money is, the money is there for them and they demand more. And the bigger they get, of course, just like any bureaucracy, the more secure they feel, the more indispensable they feel, and they probably won't get laid off then. I mean, that's how government departments actually work. But that's where it's going now with, with this. And um, it's interesting, too, to see the big boys, the, big, the biggest crooks, and how they operate. Because they've always operated the same way down through the ages. And it work, works awfully well, too. It's all to do with money. And here's an article here uh, that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase just recently donated an un- unprecedented $4.6 million to the New York City Police Foundation. That's, you know, like their, their, their little... Uh, the, the, the old joke about the policeman's ball and they have a little box there and you put the cash in it, you might walk out the door if you don't, you might get in, end up in the cells but anyway, that's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of money you want to, to put to them if you're a big company and you want them to look the other way on certain things especially if you're under investigation uh, $4.6 million to the New York City Police Foundation the gift was the largest in the history of the foundation and it will enable the New York City Police Department to strengthen security in the Big Apple Money will pay for a thousand new patrol car laptops as well as security monitoring software in the NYPD's main data center. So they're very grateful for, for, for getting that uh, tremendous donation. And well, there you go. Anyway, that, that means that JP Morgan Chase will be, uh, the place where the police will find better things to do uh, than have a look into what they're up to themselves. And an article, too, it's not bad to do with, uh, you have to understand information is put out there by so many different people and organizations with intent. It's not just news. No news, in fact, is actually news. It's all the study across the television is all spun for particular reasons uh, and or half-truths and, or omissions of the rest of the truth to leave you with a, a specific uh, impression in your mind about a particular topic. But uh, we hear the same thing about Islamophobia, and it says, Fear Inc. exposes the so-called experts and donors behind Islamophobia in the U.S. And it goes into some of the different people and organizations that are constantly peddling uh, Islamophobia uh, to, to terrify the general public. Now, the, the, I'm sure the government's grateful for it because they're also, they've got to keep this, this going while they're, they go to war with more and more Muslim nations until there's none left. Uh, and no one can convince me that that's not what the agenda is about. It's all Muslim countries they're going for. Uh, so it is a war on, on the particular religion. And it says, a new report by the Center for American Progress called Fear, Inc., the Roots of the Islamophobia Network in America, shows how a small group of self-proclaimed experts backed by a host of donors 
are spreading fear and hostility towards Muslims in the U.S. According to the report, these so-called experts peddle Islamophobia in the form of books, reports, websites, blogs, and carefully crafted anti-Islam talking points. Also notes that the right-wing Norwegian murderers, uh, Anders Breivik, repeatedly cited these experts in his so-called manifesto. Among those the report highlights is Robert Spencer, author of a blog called Jihad Watch, and the leader of the group Stop Islamization of America, which coined the term Victory Mosque at Ground Zero to refer to a local effort to build a moderate Islamic center in New York City, turning it into an international spectacle. We speak with one of the reporters, authors Faiz Shakir, uh, Vice President of the Center for American Progress and Editor-in-Chief of ThinkProgress.org. Anyway, it's not a bad article as you go through some of the, the techniques that are used. And obviously, these so-called experts are getting good backing, and I'm no doubt the government's in it too, uh, and uh, other interested parties, maybe a, a, another nation as well, I'm certain about that. But that's really how it's done. It's so easy, just constant repetition, and people seldom question anything that they hear. They don't think at all for themselves, unfortunately. Back with more after this. Folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix and the U.S. and Britain now too are trying to do away with uh, minimum wages because we're in austerity now, you understand. We have to compete with China apparently and lots of other little countries where you can knock up a shack somewhere and live in it. We can't even do that here without thousands of dollars of uh, eco-impact studies and engineers coming to see if we can have that shack or not, you know, never mind the taxes and all the rest of it. But anyway, it doesn't matter about what reality is about. They want to do away with minimum wages. Minimum wage harming job opportunities for the young. It's harming them. You understand they get the marketers in and they, they, they warp things around. So minimum wage harming job opportunities for young. You see, the minimum wage may be pricing young people out of the work because employers are finding it too expensive to give them their first job. Or oh, poor employers, eh? The government pay advisors have said, this is from Britain, and it says, um, a low pay commission is examining the link between the minimum wage rates and youth unemployment. Firms may be reluctant to create jobs by recruiting inexperienced staff because they're put off by the increased wage bill, the low pay commission has suggested. The commission's intervention comes amid calls from businesses, for, for ministers, as politicians, to freeze or even cut their rates to enable more young people to find work. Conservative ministers meeting at the party's conference are to promise a raft of measures to boost the stalling UK economy. The claims will be add to pressure on the government to go further. New rates for the minimum wage took effect on Saturday for 18- and 20-year-olds. The minimum wage is now £4.98. Wow. Wow, eh? Boy, that's high living, eh? Up from 4.92. So it's a great, eh? It went up a few cents, a few, a few pennies. For 16- to 17-year-olds, the new rate is £3.68 up from £3.64. Uh, Tim Butcher, the Commission's chief economist, told the Daily Telegraph that the body is launching a new investigation into the role the minimum wage has played in Britain's growing youth unemployment problem. So it's all because of the minimum wage that they can't get jobs, you understand. And as his official figures last month showed that almost 1 million of the 2.5 million people officially counted as unemployed in Britain are aged between 16 and 24. 
Almost 220,000 have been out of work for more than a year, and some economists fear a lost generation of young people who never learn the habits of work and face a lifetime struggle ever to find employment, which ties in exactly, as I was telling you before, how the future is always planned years ahead of anything happening. Maggie Thatcher said on national television in a speech when she was in, uh, there'll be a generation that will never see work in their lifetime. Get used to it. So they work everything way down the road from when you experience it happening. In its official advice to the government on this year's pay rates, the Commission raised concerns about younger workers, the first such warning since the introduction of the legal minimum wage rate in 1999. So recent research has found evidence that in difficult economic circumstances, the level of the minimum wage may have an impact on the unemployment of young people, they told the ministers. Anyway, they keep blaming the fact that it's too high. That's what they, they want to bring it down. That's what they want to do. And that's called austerity too. We must go down and down and down and compete with the Middle East and a few other countries. Uh, that's the agenda. And live in austerity. Live in austerity. See, at one time it wasn't so bad when they were really destroying um, the, the workforce, uh, destroying even uh, marriage, especially with the young. Uh, they ended up living with their parents. Now you don't even have parents anymore. You have maybe a parent who goes through a whole bunch of boyfriends or whatever. So the, nothing, the, the house is always full, so you can't move it back to the house. So if you don't have friends, you're, you're snookered, as they say. And so things aren't so working out so well. Now, I, I love it with these scientists with their computer models, uh, because you, they pay lots of bucks, or we pay lots of bucks for the computer models, I should say, so they can get the, the, the desired predictions, uh, just much like Nostradamus, you know, only less correct. Uh, and uh, they get the predictions that they want to hear, of course, because they're all employed through grants for life. Hopefully, if they get a really on a good, a good con, and uh, they can have a great life just looking at occasional computer and having a good old time. No hard work, no sweeping the floor, no digging trenches or anything hard. Anyway, the government was about to, to in Canada, to cut back on all of these scientists with the little stations that we all pay for, who have made a career out of watching. For an ozone hole, you see. And uh, I can remember when the first NASA craft said that we even had one, and it was in the South Hemisphere at the time, over Australia. And uh, it was only it's only company actually ever since who's actually able to define we actually have an ozone hole. It's kind of thinning of the ozone. It's at the poles, though, you see. And no doubt it's a natural phenomena, you see. But of course, when we first discovered it, oh, it must be man-made. Right, right off the bat, it must be man-made. Well, how would they know that if, unless they've been studying it for thousands of years, which they weren't? But uh, this is how they get through with cons. And that was part of the first part about, oh, man's upsetting the whole climate a long time ago. So a massive Arctic ozone hole opened up over the Northern Hemisphere for the first time this year, an international research team reported Sunday, just in time, you see, because they were going to lay them all off. The hole covered 2 million square kilometers, about twice the size of Ontario, and allowed high levels of harmful ultraviolet radiation to hit large swaths of northern Canada, Europe, and Russia this spring. That was about the spring the 29 scientists said. The discovery of the unprecedented hole comes as the Canadian government is moving to cut its ozone monitoring network. That means all these scientists living on grants. It's yawning away there and um, occasional glance at a computer, you know, and no hard pressure, not nothing. Environment Canada scientist David Tarasik, 
whose team played a key role in the report published Sunday in the journal Nature, is not being allowed to discuss the discovery with the media. Environment Canada told Post Media News that an interview with Tarasik cannot be granted. Tarasik is one of several Environment Canada ozone scientists who received letters warning of possible discontinuance of job function as part of the downsizing underway in the department. Well, you'll just have to go and get a real job then, I guess, and, and, and that's all there is to it. Unless you can terrify them that, uh, oh, if he doesn't keep watching it, we'll come to a sticky end. You know? But this is how they do it, all these scientists. They leave university and really nobody wants them until they can catch in on a big scare tactic. And that's when they get, they hopefully get a grant for life. That's what they're all after. And another article too is to do with, um, with, with the North Pole and ice. Another big con, conflicting evidence. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm back, and we're cutting through the matrix. I'll put up a link tonight about ice and how uh, the big organization was saying, oh, my God, there'll be nothing left shortly of the ice sheet on the North Pole. And I'll put up another one which shows you it's never been thicker. However, I'll go to the callers now. There's two been hanging on. There's one from the UK, long distance, so I'll take him. Daniel from the UK, are you there? Uh, yeah, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can, yeah. You know that big uh, that big food company, Kraft? Yeah. Um, that massive one. Is that, um, is that Kraft in reference to the uh, occult meaning? It is partly, yeah. It is actually partly, yeah. 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 Uh, I've been just uh, looking into that, and um, I'm trying to get my head around all this, um, all this stuff, because you often refer to all this as a, a business plan, which would make yeah. sense from a, a practical point of view. But that's where I get confused with, because the people at the top, as far as I know, um, are not religious. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be something else going on there is there not you know I hear yeah. things that they're involved in in, in other worship of, of something or other can you uh, yeah. elaborate on that yeah well, religion itself you got to remember is, a, is a, a word we all so many words we take for granted and you think it's somebody praying to a god you forget there's actually religions where people are gods they believe them they are gods you know you can also have a religion, uh, uh, and actually one of them is the, the Secular Humanist um, Foundation, the organization, the humanists. Uh, they have a religion uh, where they believe that man is a supreme creature, maybe in the universe even, and therefore technically, technically they're worshipping themselves. And there are branches of even orthodox religions which... Uh, uh, are worshipping themselves as well. People can worship themselves and actually do in some branches of, of religions. And it's all to do with what a god is. A, a god is all-powerful, meaning a god has authority, all, all power, all authority. Uh, his, his word can sink a country. It can, it can command the people uh, get killed or, or slaughtered. It can command that you don't breed or sterilize you. 
it can command that you're not allowed to eat anymore or you will not be able to afford to eat anymore. That's technically a powerful deity is simply what a god is. And um, in some religions, you can uh, be a, a priest or, or a rabbi even, uh, and you don't have to believe in a, a superhuman uh, deity. So what we're talking about here is that there are people who are obsessive, egotistical, megalomaniac weirdos who worship themselves as gods. Yeah, te- technically, yeah. In fact, the whole idea of eugenics is, is about that in a sense. They do praise themselves as the most supreme beings on the planet at the top. Even those in the lucky gene club, as they call themselves, they want to sterilize the, the, the rest of the world. They literally believe they're the cream of the crop. And they're using science to try and back it up by, by saying that, uh, in eugenics, saying that those people who have the correct genes in them would have been at the top already and they would come from, yes, Absolutely, absolutely. From its very beginnings, that's why Darwinism was brought out, in fact, was to demolish the old system of religion, which kept us a little bit humble, if nothing else. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It made you self-reflect. That was part of the idea. But they did away with that. That was the idea. And the whole idea of Darwin's book on eugenics and survival, basically of the, of the, of the most favoured races, he called it actually, meaning those people within races who rose to the top and had held on to it for generations, they, therefore they were breeding each other from, from established families, therefore they were the top, the creme de la creme. And those all beneath them who hadn't made it, the working classes, were therefore what we would call today the junk genes. This is the big joke in, with genetics today is that we're all junk genes at the bottom if you haven't made it up already. Yeah. So, it really, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, it was, just, it was just to sell it to the public. It was to sell, it was to make that, that ethos, that, that idea, that lunatic idea palatable to the public, to, make, to give it scientific credence, wasn't it? Yes, uh, the whole trick with science is that it's, um, it pretends to go by facts, but we've seen enough cons in our own lifetime and actually it's run by theories, and a theory is someone's guess, remember. Uh, the rest of them get behind this guess and, and back it until they come up with a better guess or a different guess, and then they'll change without ever admitting that the, the last one must be wrong. But uh, but absolutely, that was the idea that, that uh, man's own ingenuity uh, would give him a godlike um, appearance uh, and intellect, and then mankind would decide uh, where to go with it. But they set themselves up as a priesthood. That was the key. And that's what Bertrand Russell was talking about when he said uh, that um, it says eventually the elite will become like a different species to the ordinary people through their breeding, you know, etc. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I read something about that on, the, um, on a news article about four years ago. It, we were, the article was four years old. I read it a few months ago. And it was exactly that. Some guy called Oliver, someone over at the University of um, College London or somewhere like that, yeah. School of Economics, he's an uh, evolutionary Darwinist or something like this. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually said, and the article was, um, the human race will split into two species, um, a species of elite, um, uh, good-looking people, and then um, goblin-like uh, slave race. Yes. And he cited, he cited H.G. Wells' The Time Machine with the Eloy that's and right. the uh, Morlocks underground. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he gave all these timelines stuff, but that surprised me because I've never seen anything actually in the, uh, 
in the paper about this where these scientists are actually talking about splitting into two yes. separate species. Well, Bertrand Russell has actually said that he said that uh, in the impact of science in, on society, he said that uh, he said eventually the elite will, will, will be a separate species altogether uh, from the elite and, and it, it, from and he also, from the working classes. And he says the rest of the classes, he said. Um, will be trained uh, by injunctions, laws, and training, etc., in school, uh, and injections, uh, and by their food, and so on, to be stupider, actually. He didn't say stupid, but he meant stupider, uh, so that they'd be easily controlled by this elite. And he said, um, eventually, they'll be so far apart, these two species of humanity, that uh, the, the, the idea of a rebellion by the sheep would be would be uh, so unthinkable. It'd be like the sheep rebelling about the price of mutton. That's that was his joke about it. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but the, when it gets to that stage, there'll be no coming back from that. That'll be it forever. Then, really, yeah. won't it? Oh, absolutely. They've gone. They've already gone a long way. They they have used. I mean, he wasn't the only one. Too Charles Galton Darwin, who was the Manhattan uh, scientist that that worked uh, uh, on the bomb. He liked things that killed folk, but uh, uh, he also went back to Britain and he wrote his book, The Next Million Years, about this very topic. And his his fear was that the the lesser types would outbreed the superior types. And he says, we've got to stop this by finding ways to sterilize them and perhaps add and tamper with their hormone level in both male and female and make the, the male less aggressive by adding female hormones and he says these will have a detrimental effect also on the female who become more masculine the more she takes and she actually becomes more masculine. So they've done all this, the, the injections, uh, adding stuff to the water supply, the bisphenol A and, and the different uh, uh, estrogen mimickers and plastics and food and so on. It's even in baby food, they add it for bulk under melamine. Uh, so they've done all of that and you can see the effects around you today. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I understand. Well, um, and just one quick thing. that um, Jersey is quite a dark place, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the, the island Jersey, because I was reading about that Haute de la Garenne children's home and the horrendous things that were supposed to have gone on there a few years ago. Yeah. And when I was reading more about it, it, it's, like, it's, it's almost like a completely separate place, like a, like a dictatorship, like the way it's set up. with all the, Is that very Masonic over there, is it? Uh, they definitely use uh, masons and all of that kind of thing because they're they're taught from the start to follow orders and obey commands from seniors at, from uh, seniors and also to keep secrets. So you'll find all through the, the police, military, um, scientists, uh, the whole judicial system, uh, the, the masonic thread. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. Uh, it's in fact even Peter Wright, who was head of MI5 for a while, uh, wrote in his own book. Uh, Spycatcher, he said that when he joined, he was asked if he was a Mason. And the woman says to him, says, well, you have to be a Mason. Everyone here is a Mason, as it must be. So the, the Masonic fraternities, we cannot uh, ever, ever dismiss them. They're throughout your whole judicial system, lawyers, judges, etc. And you'll see the little hand signs as they make their gestures towards each other for what they want to happen. And the, the person who's simply accused is, uh, is just standing silent in the dock, doesn't know what's going on. So you're living in a system where it's assured, uh, secrecy is assured. Uh, same with all the high levels of all militaries, including the U.S. and Canadian. You have to be a Mason to, to get up there. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, OK. Well, that's uh, great, Alan. Thanks for answering my uh, questions. Thanks for calling. And there's Mark from Texas as well. Are you there, Mark? Alan? Yes. The government's job, job one, is to accumulate assets or collateral for the debt. Mm-hmm. That's their only job. Yep. They have used us. They have used our land. Yep. They have used the metals that we used to use in our medium of exchange. They've taken that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're now trying to, to, to actually put a surcharge on the building blocks of life to service the debt. The carbon taxes, that's nothing but collateral to service the debt. Mm-hmm. It's all about servicing a debt on paper from paper, yeah. by paper. Mm-hmm. Now, the next thing, if you can't, the, the, the government, the Federal Reserve is nothing but the pusher man. You remember the song? The pusher man. Yep. That's all they are. This government's addicted to money. Yeah. If you can't pay your drug dealer off, you can either run and hide, or what can you do? You can steal money from somebody else. These wars wars are nothing but asset allocation mm-hmm. to pay the debt. Yeah, and I agree. The problem is too. Uh, you understand? You can go back to the days of Quigley, who who belonged to the CFR. Uh, for the U.S., and he said this this system of, ele- of of the Putin and their own guys to make sure the same system kept going uh, it was already and and had been there for for 60 years when he wrote that in the 19, in the 1960s, but he said the same thing that eventually these central banks you see he says that they've hooked up across the world they come under the the business the, the banks for international settlements that's the big one in Basel Switzerland. And the feds go over, uh, the guys for the Bank of England go over, all the different central banks. It's a private organization of central banks, basically, uh, that deal with the whole country's money. And they come up with the next part of the plans amongst themselves and tell us what to do. Uh, and technically, when you're a citizen, you're just, you're just basically the collateral for all debts. That's what you are. It doesn't matter where you live. In fact, when you emigrate, it's two governments battling over who has ownership to tax you. That, that's really what it's all about. That's all it's about and, uh, completely, in fact, is who gets the right to tax you. And, and, um, and that's what we are. We're tax-based, and, uh, and that's what we, we're regarded as by those in government, basically. That is what it's all about. Yep. It's asset allocation. Yep. It's gathering of collateral. Mm-hmm. And sooner or later, they're going to run out of collateral. Yeah. And, and they know that too. They know that too because they want the population to drop on the one hand as they bring down the ones who may fight back. They bring in lots of people from other countries who've never had rebellions. They've never rebelled against anything. They have no idea what rights are. Which, and they're very happy to bring these kinds in. Um, so they're hoping to keep up the populations to pay off the debts. This is, this is the story they gave it to the general public by massive immigration like they've done with Britain and it ends up in an absolute disaster. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, they can't have it both ways. They either bring the population down and then the ones that are left have to be double or triple in taxes what they're paying already or to bring more immigrants in. We're supposed to destroy each nation with this crazy theory that only benefits the bankers themselves. Yeah. That's exactly right because fighting these wars, I still say, is nothing but trying to gather collateral. Absolutely. That's all it is to service our debt. 
Yeah. Uh, even under the guise of the fat taxes, by the way, not just the carbon taxes, they've just introduced the fat tax in us. In, in de- <laughs> what no, do no, they the, think of next? Well, the thing is, though, that everybody says, oh, yeah, there's too many fat people. Once your government, think about it, starts taxing your food, a basic essential, what's next? Your water, you see? Now, they can go the whole way with it. So this is going after their vital things for life. So it's also collective punishment that they used in the Soviet Union. If one person shot someone in the far east of Russia, the whole country would be disarmed, sort of thing. Well, it's the same thing, too. I know for a fact, if you grew up in poor areas uh, where people are skinny and they don't get much meat, they're the first ones to get hit with this fat tax. And that's going to be more expensive for them getting their meat once a week, maybe, if they're lucky, you know. And not everybody can afford the best of food. Oh, no, not these days. I mean, I, I see it up where I live, too. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to tell you something, too. I think a lot of this battery technology and whatnot mm-hmm. is nothing but a scare tactic to the to the countries that aren't involved in the central banks. Yeah. All it is is because we know on paper, well, here we go again on paper. I don't mean it the other way this time, though. No. On paper, it can't work. Yeah. It's not energy efficient. It's not cost save. There's no cost savings to it. No. But they're saying, well, we're going to take all, you know, we're going to get off the oil. Yep. It's a scare tactic is all it is to get them to install a central bank. And then what they'll do is they'll take the natural resources of those countries yep. that still don't have a central bank, and they'll throw that in against collateral yep. for the derivative debt. Well, you're right on with that because, you know, this new bank they want to set up in the States for infrastructure. You know, all infrastructure, so they're going to do it, make basically a new central bank dealing just with that. That's a form of the same thing that you're just talking about there. I think so too. And so it'll be the same across the rest of the world. And eventually you will have one bank for all energy units. And in fact, the CO2 bank is it's not just CO2, it's all energy it's going to be under. Because the whole thing is done through some crazy Wizard of Oz mathematical equation of turning this, this, this little bit of oil or whatever it is into carbon. In the sky, and this is this is the joke about the whole darn thing. But literally, this is that you will be a car, a, a, an energy consumer, even though you're producing energy yourself. It's only form of creating anything is human endeavor. The fact is, you're going to get taxed on everything that you consume or need to use, or how much does it take to make that hammer and energy, etc. This is a massive surtax on everything to, that, that you need to keep alive. And if they can keep finding smaller. Scientists, mm-hmm. if the scientists can keep finding smaller and smaller particles that we can't see, mm-hmm. that's just another level of possible taxation. Oh, there's no end to it. Uh, uh, last there's no end to this. There's no end. Last week I mentioned uh, some of the, uh, put up a site, it's, it's called uh, the, some of the world's craziest taxes in history, <laughs> a- including the light tax and the window tax during King William III. And that's why you see so many that the, the windows bricked up now in Britain from that era because you were charged by every pane or pain that allowed light in your room. That was a form of taxation. It's a crazy world, but it's a mad, mad world. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks, Alan. I enjoyed it. Back after this. Hi, folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix, and I want to show you how perception management is done in the following two articles. One, is, actually, they're both about the same information that was given out on a, on a, from the Department of National Statistics 
You know, it's just like George Orwell had that, the Department of National Statistics, it's all here. And every country's got them, you see. And how the far left, the ones who are for multi-everything and all kinds of uh, sexual things and so on, um, are, are chewing about this. And then you see the other side of it, which is more based on reality. But it says, um, the Britons are becoming more sexually adventurous with fewer defining themselves as straight and an increasing number answering, I don't know, uh, when asked to define their leanings. The annual integrated household survey published by the Office for National Statistics found a record number of people answering, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue when asked about their sexual identity. Maybe they've watched so much television, they just don't know what identity is anymore. But anyway, it's a big hurrah, hurrah one. And you think, my God, it's, it's just, everybody's changing. Even though, because all you get on media, you see is the same stuff. You think nothing else is happening in the world. But then you get this article that poses it, and it's more factual. Whatever the BBC says, Britain is still mainly white, it's mainly Christian, at least culture-wise, and straight. And it says there are lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics. And then there's the integrated household survey for the, from the Office of National Statistics. The government spends a small fortune on this annual exercise, which is designed to identify social trends in Britain. This year was the biggest ever, with a record 422,000 respondents. So they send out these questionnaires. According to the ONS, it is a definitive study of sexual identity, religion, ethnicity, and perceived general health. It says a survey found that 70% of Britons claim to be Christian even if they do not attend church. That wasn't in the other one, you see. It says, presumably, it's intended to reinforce the officially endorsed portrait of Britain as a vibrant mosaic of multicultural, religious, and sexual diversity. Certainly, that's how it's been greeted on the left. It says the Independent, for instance, the newspaper, was ecstatic saying official statistics show big rise in numbers of Britons unsure of their sexuality, it declared yesterday. Under the headline, More Varieties of Sex, Please, We're British, the paper rejoices Britons are becoming more sexually adventurous with fewer defining themselves as straight, an increasing number answering I don't know when asked to define their leanings. Undoubtedly, if you know the facts, the Indies got a point. Over the past 12 months, there was a fall of 0.2% in the number of adults who say they're straight. That's right, 0.2%. He says, his name is Reg, lives in Rotherham, and hasn't had a girlfriend for five years. That's his little joke. So that's probably really uh, out of the survey. That's one person. But that doesn't exactly suggest Britain is entering an enlightened era of hedonistic sexual flexibility. I'd have a thought that new figures would have come as something of a disappointment to the high priests of homosexual equality. Only 1.3% of men who replied to the survey say they are gay, and just 0.6% of women identify as lesbian. That's amazing. I thought a lot more than that after all the whole lifetime of propaganda and everything you see on television would make you think that's how the world is. It says, that's well short of the 7% claimed by the gay rights organizations, Stonewall, and nowhere near the alleged 27% who were reported by the BBC website last year to be either gay or bisexual. I think that's just the ones that work in BBC, though. 94% of men and women consider themselves 100% heterosexual. Another 4% say they, they couldn't or wouldn't answer the question. So they didn't want to answer the question. In other words, mind your own damn business. Yeah. See how you can perception management can really throw you off, unless you think for yourself. Anyway, from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, me, your God, or your gods go with you. And remember, buy the books and help donate and keep me ticking along here. <laughs>